I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. Welcome back to Futurecast. Today we have with us Sophia Bazil, who is an independent foresight researcher and the founder of the FLYP, the Futures Literate Youth and Professionals. Thank you for joining us, Sophia. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you two today. So... I guess I'll just jump straight into the conversation. We're really excited to speak with you because obviously you recently wrote some amazing material in an article with Sergio for Futurecast, which we're really grateful for. Just to get us started, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you came into the kind of work that you're doing. So as a first generation Haitian American, you have lived all over the world, it seems, when I read your bio. And you've no doubt observed perceptions of blackness in so many cultures and contexts. What first drew you to the Black Futures research? And as a writer, was there a seminal piece of work or an expression that sparked your imagination? Or was it always just a natural progression in your academic work? Well, I think it's a mixture of all of the things that you mentioned. It's a perfect confluence of factors, current events that were taking place. At the time, I decided to focus on Black Futures, my very own professional professional and personal development journey. And um, to focus on Black Futures more recently, I was invited to participate in a World Futures Review Research Symposium. So I had to make a choice about... Um, which topics I would focus on. I have a lot of different passions and diverse interests. And at the time, it was back in June, and there was a lot of discourse going on around the George Floyd protests. And when it came down to choosing my topics, I was living in Bali and noticing a lot of very interesting social things here. I also have a deep background in education, which is timeless (laughs) and ever evolving. And then um, just noticing the prevalence in media and the social discourse about the Black Lives Matter movement, I really was compelled to think about which of these topics I would regret not writing about in 10 years. And that one was definitely the one. Um, Having traveled all over, it's quite interesting the experience I've had around Blackness. They've been largely positive in a lot of contexts, but also a catalyst for reflection about how different attitudes and worldviews are exported and adopted around the world. So um, all of this led for me to feel really passionate about contributing to the larger discourse around Black lives, Black history, and very naturally Black futures, and how we can help, and how we all have a stake in helping the Black community realize their most preferred futures. And just out of of curiosity, what was that like, witnessing the Black Lives Matter movement and seeing what was happening in the U.S. when you were living abroad? How did that feel for you? Well, (laughs) this is a heavy topic um, because I think all of us Black people in the diaspora who live abroad are, we're not a monolith. We have very diverse views on different things and very diverse experiences based on external factors and our own personal lives and journeys. Yet there's just this common thread that anytime something like that happens in the US, 
you're just kind of re-traumatized again. And it doesn't matter where you are. It just really causes a lot of heartache and you worry about your family mm -hmm. and friends back home. Depending upon where you are and the social communities that surround you, you may not have support. Like for example, a large part of this that happened in Bali, and it shows where my research and my interests intersect, is that when the George Floyd protests happened, there's a large spiritual wellness community. I mean, Bali has a reputation for being the sort of nexus for this kind of journey and spiritual awakening. But I began to notice that within the health, wellness, and spiritual community, there was a lot of spiritual bypassing going on. Like somebody once said to me, like, I was really, really sad after watching the George Floyd situation and then basically watching the U.S. burn from afar with these different protests. And someone said to me, you know, well, why do you care? What's the point of being here in Bali if you're going to be worried about what's going on over there? And these are the same people who are have like been to Africa and been to South America and taken ayahuasca and done all these kinds of things to get on this quote unquote enlightened and awakened spiritual journey, but their very core values and beliefs are antithetical to what these teachings are. So on one side of their mouth might escape, we are all one and the oneness of the world and we're all in this together. But then on the other side, just very easily to detach themselves, very easily able to detach themselves from very human issues and you know, just being able to truly empathize with different situations. So that was a huge catalyst for delving into Black Futures research, but also something that's kind of, let's just say I've had my own ex experiments and adventures with plant medicine and things like that nature. And um, these are like indigenous rituals and things like that. So I did go on a little journey in um, Bali and I wasn't expecting that the shaman I worked with when they were channeling energy, they were able to relay my own internal monologue back to me. And I was expecting certain other things, but I was stopped dead in my tracks when a lot of the internal monologue about what was going on inside me had to do with thinking about if that was racist. And things really centered around questioning like how I'm perceived in the world or different experiences I've had around racism. And I will say what's also compelled me to kind of raise my voice in this Black future space is that what you'll see now and the conversations having being had in very public forums, Black people have been having them for years. So as painful and traumatizing as this all can be, you can't move forward in your life until you shine light into the dark spaces. It's something called shadow work, right? There's, there's a need and a reckoning to be had, and we can't just consistently avoid these things. So in a way, everything that's going on right now is deeply validating for a lot of us because we were siloed away thinking that we were all, the only people feeling these ways in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our interactions with different people. But seeing how prevalent these experiences are is like, oh, it's a relief. It feels like you are being gaslit <laughs> and you still are being gaslit because there's a lot of denialism around these things. But it's deeply validating to know that this is a shared experience and I'm not just imagining things. 
and creating narratives that aren't there. Perhaps, I mean, there's work to do in how we, the actions we take once these things are recognized and there's been light shed on them and how you deal with it. But knowing that there are other people and you're not just crazy or you're not just imagining these discriminatory practices or really microaggressions, macroaggressions was, it's, it's empowering in a way. It's empowering. Wow. So deep, so quick. Hey, yeah. Yeah. So deep, <laughs> so quickly. I, I mean, everything that you are saying is so interesting and reminded me of that song anthem from Leonard Cohen, who says that there is, that there is a crack in everything and that's where the light comes in. And I can start to feel some of that light coming through because there are plenty of cracks in this in this whole narrative that you talk about. And speaking of which, every time we think about you know things like Afrofuturism, Black futures, the narrative of Wakanda is certainly one that comes to mind. Wakanda, for anyone that doesn't recall, is the fictional country in the Marvel comic books and the home of the superhero Black Panther. It's sort of depicted in the film as the most technologically advanced country in the world. And I, I'm just curious to, to know if, if this narrative is one that has informed any of your work, any of your Black Futures research. Well, firstly, my research is still very much in its infancy, so it's evolving as we speak. Yet Wakanda, as we know, is just, I mean, it's become the go-to narrative. It's the most mainstream widespread narrative that's been created that shows black people in a positive light that um, was supported by so many. It was one of the highest grossing films. So it totally, totally disproved the narrative that an all black cast can't sell tickets to the movies. And um, shout out to Marvel for always, you know, they've always been on social justice issues and definitely Mm. promoted equity and diversity. The Wakanda narrative has come up. And I myself have even had to go back and reflect and think critically about how helpful or in some ways how harmful it can be. So it comes up in in a number of ways, right? Firstly, that Africa is the promised land for people of the diaspora, right? And a large part of the impact is of recent political things, or actually black people have always been moving around, whether it was by choice or just by looking for better opportunities in different places. But there's a movement called Blacksit, right? And Blacksit is like people who've had it with the U.S. essentially, and are finally open and actually doing the work to go ahead and live abroad. I, I made my Blacksit seven years ago this March, so that narrative is old for me, but it's, I love seeing people being really challenging the perceptions of American exceptionalism and that it's the best place on earth to live because it's not, right? So Particularly now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, Wakanda, some people view like Africa as the promised land. Like I'm going to go back there. They have very romantic notions about what Africa can be for Black people. And then you have African people like, well, no, there's a whole range of issues here and it's not to have any romantic notions about this. And We've got our own things to unpack and our own identities and um, disunity, if you will, in some ways. So that's an interesting part of the narrative. We're all waiting for our Wakanda, but I think our Wakanda is not going to be this Black utopia. It's just not. I think our world requires far more inclusivity to 
make Wakanda for everybody. But there are people making Wakanda's villages in Senegal and things like that. So the narrative is definitely being used to try to promote prosperity in Black communities. Now, on the other hand, you know, I love the movie and Chadwick Boseman. It was just such an amazing experience to go to the theater, get dressed up with people that look like me. I was living in Dubai at the time. We went to the premiere and we got in our Wakanda finest and we still do the X symbol. It just really had such a positive impact on the collective Black identity to be the stars of the show and to be all around celebrated. Like, I don't even know. I deem to say that maybe even some people who are kind of on the fringe or lean more towards lean more towards, let's say, white supremacist attitudes, I could very much envision them having seen Wakanda and just taking it as a positive film. And I don't know if they internalize the ideas from it because there's a lot of political stuff in there, but I think it sold more tickets than any other movie at that time in history. So that goes to show you that it had large-scale support. But on the other hand, the challenge about Wakanda is that there are some perspectives that say it centers white feelings in terms of the comfort. Like at the end, T'Challa decided to go ahead and work with the Westerners and share their resources. And look at where that's gotten Africa in the past. So it was kind of this happy ending where they didn't say no for a change. It was always about placating the dominant narratives and powers that be. So that's the main thing. I think a lot of people feel that it paints this, you know, unreal perception of what, and doesn't do enough to really unpack the many layers of the diasporic experience and just kind of, I don't know, it's just gives false optimism, I would say, and also doesn't show enough strength in that we've moved past the point or some people have moved past the point where there's where the black community is always the one making concessions in a way and kind of just cowing to the structures that have always existed. Content Brain specializes in content creation across a diverse range of topics for many industry sectors. If you need help with content development for your blogs, thought leadership, white papers, video, podcasts, or special projects, talk to the team at Content Brains. You'll find links in our episode notes. Mm. And and with so many narratives, so many per- perspectives, and so many experiences that you had, shamanistic and, and, you know, <laughs> and many other types, cultural, social, uh, uh, economic, and, you know, like being in Dubai and watching you know, the Black Panther from there must have been quite something. Uh, but in the end of the day, what is the central question that you're trying to answer? What is that you want to achieve with your research? And I know it's in you know early stages, but what is your desire with that? Oh, well, you know, my journey to futures was a quite a long and winding one. But what I will say in short is that it was completely life altering. And I haven't been the same since I have discovered future studies. It really gave me a sense of empowerment over taking ownership of the narrative. I was able to reconcile some traumatic experiences from my past and feel empowered to create the future that I want in the beginning. And it also 
there's a, I, I remember coming out of this futures class and, and the, the workshop where we met Sergio, where we met at the Bangkok workshop and, um, or the Bangkok conference, APFN, and then I took Sohail's course after. I just remember leaving and the world was not so bleak because I had learned about so many incredible things with technology that were happening that didn't make me fear robots anymore. And so many positive things are happening, but this knowledge is not accessible to the masses. So I guess to answer your question about what I'm trying to achieve with my future studies and increasing futures literacy amongst the Black community is that just to prove how it has the power to help with a sense of well-being and a sense of control over your life and the contributions you can make. Uh, defining your purpose, changing narratives, and really taking a greater stake and ultimately feeling like they can indeed make a difference. A lot of different initiatives, there are like Black Lives Matter, for example, right? Everybody always comes to that. And I know we're going to talk about that at some point today, but people have, yes, a, very, we will. <laughs> people have a very limited, some people have a very limited understanding of what Black Lives Matter is. They think it's only about police killings, but it's not. It's so much more complex, like everything else. And I think complexity studies and anticipatory studies really have the power to help us to reconcile with the past and use our desired futures to make more informed and impactful, positively impactful decisions in the present. So that's what I would like for individuals or organizations. The research is within the Black community for now, but I hope this, what comes out of it will be able to be applied in terms of creating more safe workspaces. And um, I'm deeply passionate about education and we know that's where a lot of this indoctrination begins. So how can we use um, future studies and really digging deeply using things like causal layered analysis and different tools to understand, to, to genuinely take perspectives and create greater empathy, greater self-compassion is super important too, because we're all very hard on ourselves for what we did or didn't do right. And in order to be able to really take ownership of our own narratives and make changes, we have to transcend these unproductive and limiting beliefs of, well, that wasn't good enough and it can never be good enough. You know, it's a journey for all of us and we can be far more intentional with how we engage both with ourselves on this journey and with the people that we come across. And it's not going to be easy. I mean, I've been wrong about so many of this so many times. I know cancel culture comes up and it just takes courage. It takes courage because when you're hiding and you're not really willing to have difficult conversations or fear of saying something wrong, then you're missing a lot of opportunities to learn and to grow. You know, growth is painful. <laughs> it's not this, you know, sunshine and rainbows journey. It's It's got a lot of unearthing <laughs> to do. And sometimes there's rocks you hit and you got to pull up roots and dig out weeds. So, you know, but it's a collective yeah, the, one that's so important. Yeah, in the sea of roses, there are many thorns, which I mean, uh-huh. and based on what you said, it took me, you know, straight to, to our, our article, you know, where there is a quote from uh, the book 1984 from George Orwell, where he writes that who controls the past controls the future and who controls the present controls the past. And in contrast to that, uh, Dr. Ilana, uh, Ivana Milosevic from Meta Futures 
what you said in response to that was who controls the future controls the present. And I think mm. that this ambition, this goal, this desire that you have in terms of democratizing futures literacy is, is an incredible one. It's really empowering. And as Professor Soheil would also say, is a vision that not only enables, but also ennobles. And uh, yeah, yes. I, I'm yes, really keen to that. see that happening. Yes, I do agree with the George Orwell quote. It's true, but we see the dominant narratives of history playing out in our present. So there's a lot to unpack there as well. I can't wait to talk more about that. Uh-huh. Mm. And I guess what you were speaking about before, Sophia, really tied into my next question a little bit because you were touching on having ownership over narratives and just to take us back a little bit for the listeners as well. Um, so you run a consultancy that is interested in flipping the script and leveraging powerful narratives to change the future. And you've written about how exclusion and underrepresentation or misrepresentation of black people has forced black people and communities to essentially create their own opportunities. And it's given rise to movements like Black Lives Matter and Twitter, a black Twitter, which we touched on briefly. Can you talk to us about why having ownership over the narrative is so important for the future? Well, having ownership over the narrative is so important for the future because basically, you know, we can use numbers all we want and data, data, data. But what about this analysis paralysis, which sees us replaying the same situations over and over? And some groups are not able to advance within the systems that we have. There is definitely a place for narratives and storytelling and ethnographic futures to really be able to cultivate empathy amongst different populations and better bring the collective into more alignment, essentially. So having ownership over the narrative, only we can tell our stories in that. We've seen it go really, really wrong when brands don't have any Black people on their leadership teams or in their boardrooms and meetings. And then they go and they do something really so... (laughs) So asinine and inane. <laughs> and then they wonder why they face backlash. Like if you had somebody black in there, you would have had a voice that could tell you, nah, you know, actually my people are not going to like that. Okay. So this is where you go wrong. It's same goes for women. Same goes for other marginalized groups. It's really about have being inclusive. It's not about dominating the narrative completely, but since we have not been provided those spaces, we've had to create our own. Like, I did mention Twitter. The guy, Jack Dorsey, didn't even know Black Twitter existed. And Black Twitter is huge. If you want to know anything that is happening in the political, social, I don't know, economic discourse around Black people, amazing memes. Black people are hilarious, first of all. I mean, um, in all my worldly travels, let me tell you something. From music to art to fashion, like people around the world associate American U.S. culture specifically with Black people. Like, U.S. culture is Black culture. It really is. So I guess taking ownership of the narrative is that people have loved Black culture and they like to adopt certain things and use it and monetize it, but do they? their actions don't necessarily show that they love Black people. So we need to be able to tell our own stories, right? We can tell them very authentically and genuinely. And I think that's a great way to kind of, yeah, show the accuracy and the nuance of the Black experience. We're not a monolith. The things that you see in media 
and the films that have been created for a large part of history, it's getting better now, you know, different people are getting platforms, but for a large part of history showed very stereotypical portrayals of black people. You can even go in a textbook and see like deviants and a picture of a black person getting arrested. Like this is planting both very overt and sometimes subconscious ideas of what blackness is. And it's very damaging. So since not given a seat at the table, we've had to make our own and it's been largely effective. And then you have brands trying to catch up now because they realize they've been missing out on some of the largest consumers, right? And black people are known to be fiercely loyal to brands that do right. So it's in, really in everybody's best interest to, first of all, hand over some of the privilege and the power that you have and just be more inclusive and invite people to the table. Don't speak for me and don't think you know my story because there's things that you would never understand about my experience. It's better to kind of, yeah, you know, nobody tries to do it themselves, not even political leaders. They have a team that they delegate things to and specialists in different areas. So yeah, we see some improvement with diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, but a lot of it is just lip service and yeah. We have a lot of progress to make in terms of the narrative and who's creating it and the platforms that they're being given. So, so add, adding to your point and actually building on, on that, culture is one of the most powerful levers to building a brand, if not the most powerful. And because of that, many brands will then go and associate themselves with cultural movements, cultural moments, cultural signals, cultural flag, flashpoints. And, and any other signifiers that can add new meaning, derive new equity to the brand. Black Lives Matters was a movement that gained considerable support from a few brands, Nike one that stood out uh, uh, during that time. Uh, but brands are also advised not to enter the political discourse because you know that's not really where they are playing a role. It's more you know about transactions and maybe uh, animating your shopping routines and things like that. That. However, we're living this very unusual moment in history. But for you as a consumer, as well as a futurist, how do you interpret that? Well, firstly, I always scoff and I think it's terribly naive to say certain things aren't political. Everything is political from the passports we hold to the countries we're allowed to go to being called an expat versus a migrant versus an immigrant. Everything is political. Brands enter the political discourse all the time. And for example, American politics, they do it in a shadowy way. Like they lobby the government representatives and make con financial contributions to candidates and campaigns that further their interests. Now, those interests tend to be very profit-driven and it's all about creating value for the shareholders and it doesn't necessarily trickle down. To so we've seen what happens when brands enter politics in that way. Nothing is not, my viewpoint on this is nothing is apolitical. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's a very privileged standpoint to be able to take in one's personal life and professionally and otherwise. There are laws that govern us as a collective and we've entered into a sort of social contract in which we're trying, we're supposed to be <laughs> trying to create life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness for all. Right. But the other ways that brands enter the political discourse is definitely through what they create for whom, why, how and how they choose to market things. So. For example, in places like Asia or Africa or wherever, you will find billboards and advertisements that still center European-centric, Eurocentric values and aesthetics about beauty and about other things. Mm -hmm. 
So that's definitely upholding systemic things that line our shelves with what to buy and, and ultimately shape people's own creation of their identities. And those can be flawed, right? So I love, I mean, you mentioned Nike. Nike is awesome. They've been including people of diverse shapes, sizes, backgrounds, and abilities more recently in all of their ads. They've been doing that forever. And they gave uh, Colin Kaepernick a platform after he was lambasted and blacklisted from the NFL. Mm -hmm. They stood behind him steadfastly. So they're one of the examples that have been branding the social movements right. Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and Publisher of Marketing Mag, and Jazz Giuliani, Editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky, with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.